when you have the death of truth, then, you know, we're really losing a core foundation. And democracy is is under an unrelenting attack from Donald Trump. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spirituality, how we all got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, doubters, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. I'm your host, Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Holy Heretics. Right now we're between seasons, but we're excited to bring you an Election Day episode. And for those of us in the deconstruction community, politics continues to be both personal and national and, and frankly, incredibly divisive. I, I recently heard reports that over 8 million evangelicals in the United States left Christianity during the Trump regime. And you've seen it. I've seen it. Uh, the conversations we've had with friends and family uh, quickly escalate to a place almost of no return. So how do we move forward? How do we engage individuals that are diametrically opposed to us politically? Um, how do we have conversations with our friends and family who in our opinion, seem to be living in an alternative universe. Um, and who better to help us with that than CNN's Kirsten Powers, whose new book, Saving Grace, comes out today. But before we get to Kirsten, I do want to introduce our new guest co-host, who's going to be joining me in season two of Holy Heretics. Uh, her name's Kelly Lamb. You may remember her from her episode with us back in season one. She's from Vancouver. Kelly's real passions in life are to empower women to lead in the business, the policy, theology, and the church. And she was burdened by this through the pain of having her own voice stifled as a woman and being told to stand down. Sounds eerily familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Uh, she has graduate degrees in public policy and theology. Uh, she's an entrepreneur and a pastor. And today she's working in the business growth space and loves the world of ideas. So Kelly, I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for adding your voice and your wisdom to Holy Heretics. Thank you so much, Gary Allen. I am really excited to be on this side of the mic with you. Yeah, I'm excited too. No, it's going to be fun. Uh, as a Canadian, uh, I'm fascinated not only with American Christianity, since it differs such a great deal from what I experience in Canada, but even more so how evangelicals live out their faith in the political arena in what has turned out to be a very aggressive way. Even for a non-American citizen, it is obvious that evangelicals do not separate their politics from their religion. And it seems that lately, those political loyalties have expressed themselves in actually really bizarre and often cruel ways. So I've become increasingly baffled by an entire group of people who say they follow Jesus, but who actually serve Trump. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So to help us navigate the intersection of faith and politics in America, and even more broadly, we are honored to have with us today, Kirsten Powers. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're so excited. So Kirsten is a New York Times bestselling author, USA Today columnist, and senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on Anderson Cooper 360, CNN Tonight, and Don Lemon, and lead with Jake Tapper. 
Her writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Dallas Morning News, the New York Observer, Salon, the Daily Beast, the New York Post, Elle, and the American Prospect Online. A native of Fairbanks, Alaska, Powers lives in Washington, D.C. with her fiancé, Robert Draper, and their two fur children, Lucy and Bill. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Kirsten, I think the first question is, why are you on our show? Like, you are way too cool for us, way, way too big time for us. So That's not true. No. No, I, I think, well, I'm also, I'm very interested in the same things that you guys are interested in. Well. I think that I'm, you know, I'm having a lot of conversations. I'm recording a lot of podcasts, but I don't, you know, you're the first podcast to mention deconstructing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, something I've experienced Mm -hmm. and I, yeah, I'm very, I'm very interested in, I think the same things that you guys are interested in. Well, cool. So I followed your career, um, as we said, off air through a few mutual friends. And before we kind of get into Saving Grace, before we get into the story of moving from kind of Team Fox News to CNN, do you mind just giving us a bit of your background as it relates to faith, as it relates maybe to your own deconstruction journey, and then in particular, how that might intersect with the public voice that you really own on CNN and USA Today these days? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I don't think I was ever on Team Fox News. Okay. <laughs> I, well, you I were there. there. <laughs> I was there, yes. Um, but I, I, the, the faith story is a pretty long story, so I'll try to do it in a truncated form. I came to faith later in life. I was in my late 30s living in New York City. I grew up in an Episcopalian family that Yay. really was not... <sighs> We went to church and I went to Sunday school, but it wasn't, uh, I don't know. I don't think it was very central to my life. If you were to ask me if I believe in God, I would have said yes. I would have said I was a Christian, but that was about the extent of it. Mm. By the time I went to college, I started moving into believing that religion was probably stupid and the opiate of the masses and all of those things <laughs> that you believe in college. And I had a real spiritual crisis. It was very upsetting. And I I ultimately sort of settled into agnosticism because that made me feel a little better. But then throughout most of my adult life, I would go back and forth. Sometimes I'd be saying like, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. And other times I'd be like, oh, maybe. But that that was pretty much it. I didn't feel like I needed to have a spiritual life or needed to find God or any of those things. And I ended up dating somebody who was going to a church in New York City that it was a Presbyterian church and I didn't know anything. So I just thought that was like being Episcopalian. I didn't know there, that was evangelical. <laughs> so I, I went with him. He asked me to go with him and I went with him and ended up really liking it. And was really taken in. The pastor was Tim Keller. Many people Mm -hmm. may know of him. And the church I came to find was a seeker church. So it really was oriented towards people like me, people who just didn't think Christianity had anything for them or who maybe had grown up Christian but had grown away from it. And so it was very engaging and I, I got very pulled into it. And long story short, I ended up having a pretty profound spiritual experience. I became 
a Christian. I started attending that church and um, really was in the evangelical world for close to a decade. Hmm. And which was really actually a lot of times people will say like, Oh, it was so wonderful. This happened. It wasn't really like that for me. It was alarming. And I thought maybe I had gone insane (laughs) and all of these things because I just was like, how could I believe these things? I didn't know anybody who believed these things. All my friends were extremely secular, mostly atheist. And so I, I spent time in, in the evangelical world, but I have to say, I always, I didn't really ever totally sign on to it. Mm. I always felt like that's, I'm reading the Bible and I'm not necessarily seeing the same thing that you're seeing, but you guys are the experts, right? Cause I didn't know anybody else right. who was doing this. And so I, I, but I ultimately ended up deciding that, um, it just wasn't for me and I, I needed to leave and I had experienced a lot of, um, I mean, it, I think it was spiritual abuse really. And wow. I, I left there feeling very beaten up and I converted to Catholicism, which my mother's side of the family is Catholic. And so mm-hmm. I, I converted to Catholicism and pretty quickly started to have a similar experience Uh, you know, and so I felt like, wait, I thought this was different. And there was just a lot of the people saying you have to believe all the things or else and all that kind of stuff. And it just was making me very, very unhappy. And I got to a point where I felt like, I think I'm just not a Christian because I just can't relate to what all these people are saying. And I don't really see what they're saying when I read the Bible. Mm. Now, the obvious rejoinder to all of this should be, why didn't you look at other forms of Christianity? <laughs> <laughs> um, and be, and I think people who've been in the evangelical world probably understand why that is, because you're told that they're not real Christians and right. that the only real Christianity is this Christianity. And also, as it turns out, and I write about in my book, it, it really had intersected with my own particular flavor of trauma in a very combustible way. So mm-hmm. I already had, because of trauma I had experienced, I already was in a very black and white state. And then I went into the evangelical church that was very binary. Mm-hmm. Here are all the rules. You have to think this way. And it just actually made things worse for me. Now, some people can go into that environment and don't have that reaction. I, I just wasn't one of them. And so I was really hanging on by a thread and I ended up discovering Richard Rohr. Mm. And I started reading Richard Rohr. And when I was reading him, I thought, oh, this is what I think. Hmm. And maybe there is a way to be a Christian and not believe all these other things that I really have a problem with. Um, and then around the same time, I discovered uh, someone named James Martin, who's a Jesuit priest, mm, yep. who is, is um, he's a big, uh, per, a big per, a person who speaks up for LGBTQIA people. So, right. and he, he ended up becoming my spiritual advisor. And so between Roar 
And Father Martin, I started moving into this space where I could embrace the idea of mystery and the idea of the both and, and the idea that there's there that you could be a Christian with, and you could be a Catholic in my case without having to sign on all to all of these other things. And so hmm. that's when it started to kind of like I kind of exhaled and I was able to. <laughs> To say, okay, like I can do this. I can do this. I don't have to figure everything out. Hmm. Wow. Well, you know, and, and I think that's the burden that so many people in evangelicalism face on a daily basis. There is this totalizing worldview that thinks this is what Christianity is. This is the only way it is. And if you leave this, you're, you know, you're doomed. And just like you, I mean, Roar was a gateway drug for me into an entire new different way of seeing my spirituality that's much freer, it's more inclusive, and allows, as you said, for like, I don't know, you know, like we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're pursuing this. Um, so yeah, and I think that's a yeah. huge key for people to just go, it's okay, there are other forms out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, when I look back on it, it just seems sort of crazy that I didn't see that, but I just couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. And I felt, I, I was filled with a lot of fear. Yeah. And I think that that's also sort of, I mean, that's what happens is you start right. to feel fearful about things. And so you feel fearful about making a mistake and the stakes are so high, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I then became, I think, sort of obsessed with how horrible I thought evangelicals were. (laughs) And, and that was, you know, that was sort of during my deconstructing process. And now I feel like I'm on the other side of that where I can, you know, Richard Rohr talks about transcending and including, which Mm -hmm. means when you've really transcended something, it means that you can take what was good from it and leave the rest of it behind and move on, but you don't look down or demonize on the people who are still part of it. And that's where I am now. I can look at it and say, I see some things that are problematic. I see some things that I disagree with, but there were good things too. Right. Mm. You know, there were good things. And I think that, um, I think my literacy in terms of the Bible would not be what it was had I not Mm-hmm. ever attended an evangelical church and attended Bible studies and, and all of those things. So when now someone comes at me with scripture, I'm like, I, I know what it says. But, you know, <laughs> right, I'm not, right. this is not, you're not going to trick me into thinking that I don't know what the Bible says. Um, and so I, you know, that's very empowering. And mm-hmm. and so I think that, that that's a good thing that came out of it. I think that I, I think the truth is I had a real spiritual experience and I wasn't given the right container for it. Yeah. So it's not that I didn't have a profound spiritual experience. I did. It's just that the container that I was given wasn't the right container. And then I found the right container and now it works. Hmm. I love that. I love the way that you continued asking questions and kept looking for the thing that worked for you and, and embracing mystery at the end of that story. Um, but I think it takes a lot of courage to to transition from one one way of seeing things or, as you said, um, one way of understanding to another. Um, so I, I really, yeah, you have an incredible story mm-hmm. on, the, on the faith front. Um, and you've made you. another big jump, which is from, I know you said you're not team Fox News, but you moved from Fox News to CNN. And even yeah. as a Canadian, I know that's a big deal. Um, can you tell us what happened there or what, what led you to that um, switch? 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is that I changed. I, I used to be, I used to love to argue. Hmm. And I loved to like try to win arguments and win hmm. debates. And so I think that's why I stayed at Fox for as long as I did. But that really <laughs> grew out of unhealth. Right. So I, it's it's I, I learned as I write about in the book when I started to deal with my trauma and was looking back on that, that I thought, oh, this is great because I'm arguing and I'm and I'm doing all these things. But what I didn't realize was that I was I was really coming. I was really reenacting my childhood in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And so it wasn't actually very healthy for me, but I wasn't aware of that. Right. This was it was very unconscious. And so. I even had opportunities where I was offered jobs working other places, you know, going to MSNBC and things like that, where I just was like, no, I want to stay here because I like being the person who's pushing back on things. I don't want to just be around, you know, people who think like me. Um, I, I like this. And I had sort of this idea that this was a good thing. Hmm. And I came to realize that it wasn't. And that, that while, and the thing about Fox News and it, it's a, it is a very different place than it is today. So we're not really talking about the Fox News of today. Right. But when I was there, there there was the news division and there was the entertainment division. And I I worked in both. And so I but I spent most of my time in the news division. And and that meant having pretty reasonable conversations with people who disagreed with me, like Charles Crowdhammer or George Will or, you know, people who are intellectuals, uh, mm. even if I disagreed with them. And I was able to say what I needed to say and we could disagree about it. I was doing a lot of the special coverage and those kinds of things. Then I was also doing the going on the primetime shows and, you know, with Sean Hannity or Megan Kelly and Bill right. O'Reilly. And th- those were very different. And, <laughs> and in particular, it just, I finally, one of my friends actually reached out to me. I used to do Bill O'Reilly's show every Monday night. And one of my friends reached out to me who was actually a conservative and said, I just saw you on Bill O'Reilly and it is so unhealthy mm. <laughs> and you need to leave. Wow. Wow. And I was like, what? You know, I was kind of like, I didn't really see it because I felt like I so often got the best of him. <laughs> but I really did come around to see that like, this is profoundly unhealthy. This is not a normal way to yeah. live. And this is not a normal career. And I and so I was already in that place when Donald Trump came on the scene, but I was under contract, so there was nothing mm-hmm. I could really do. Mm-hmm. And then Donald Trump came on the scene, and then things just really spiraled out of control, and it became much more difficult for me there. And so I tried to break my contract; they wouldn't let me. And then Roger Ailes, as I'm sure everybody remembers, yep was accused of sexual harassment and, you know, ended up getting pushed out. And during that little period, I saw an opening and I had my agent go in and say, let her go. Yeah. And they didn't want to fight with another woman. So they let me go. And I just, yeah. And I just moved to CNN. Yeah. And never looked back. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's really crazy. That is really crazy. So I want to br- yeah. I want to bring up something because uh, I I watched you model this whole notion of grace and um, really 
backing away from potentially an argument or uh, social rage when you actually apologize for something you posted on Twitter several years ago about the, I think it was the Covington, uh, Kentucky kids. Um, I mean, that, that was a big deal, um, in terms of it, I, I, I don't think I'd remember a public figure actually saying they were sorry for anything. And, can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about that and and what led to that? And and then I want to follow up with with kind of how you show how you model that um, in in your book. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. People remember it as being about Covington. When it, it, Covington was just one of many things actually mm. that I mentioned. And um, unfortunately, because I wrote a column for USA Today about it, and of course they chose a picture of Covington, right. but that was one line in the column. And I basically what had happened was in 2018 was really when I first realized I, when I really hit the wall uh, post 2016. And I, I just realized this is untenable. I am filled with absolute rage all the time. Mm-hmm. I am miserable. I am physically sick. I have chronic fatigue. I have fibromyalgia. I have anxiety. I have all these things. Um, I'm ang- you know, angry all the time. I have contempt you know, mm-hmm. for right. large swaths of America, <laughs> right? Of people I've never even met, and I, I, I think the thing that really sort of pull, pulled me up short was the moment when I realized that my behavior and my thoughts, and it was mostly my thoughts. Honestly, it wasn't as much the way I was behaving. It was more the internal dialogue that that it wasn't aligned with what I believe, mm-hmm. and I say I'm a Christian. And I say that I believe in these things. I, I, I believe in loving your neighbors, but I also believe in loving your enemies. And there's no way I could possibly portray where I was as loving anybody. Mm-hmm. And and I think what's even worse is I didn't even want to. I think when I initially had that reaction, I was like, yeah, too bad. <laughs> right. I, you know, I can't yeah. do it. It's not, it's not going to happen. And <laughs> And, but, but I did find, but I knew that that wasn't right. And I think I I ultimately came around to saying, I need to just take a breath and I need to step back. I got off of social media. I, I really sat with myself. I spent a lot of time going back over my previous work, look, trying to look at it with a critical eye. I, Mm -hmm. the way I was engaging, I, I spent, you know, I was meditating, I was praying, I was doing all these things, getting grounded. And I, what came out of that was the article, the column that I wrote for USA Today. I did it started as a Twitter thread and then it became a column of saying, we have a toxic culture and I have to be honest, I'm contributing to it. Mm, Right. And a lot of what I heard from people who know me were, you're being too hard on yourself. You're so reasonable. You're the voice of reason and all these things. And I said, yeah, I, I am most of the time. And I said, and sometimes I'm toxic. Hmm. Like those two things can actually coexist. And I want to actually be not contributing to the problem, but helping make the problem better. And so in that column, I actually said, I think we need to have more grace for each other. Hmm. Um, That wasn't a well thought out thing. It was an intuition. And uh, an agent reached out to me, a book agent, and said, this should be a book. And I thought, yeah, it should be a book because I'm about to embark on this journey Mm. of how to actually. And that was one thing about the column that I wrote is that 
part of the point of the column was to repent and to take responsibility because like you said, people don't usually do that. And so I wanted to model that. And it was also a marker because once you go out and you say all this, you can't just start, you can't keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I was, I, and it was, uh, so it was marking like this as a turning point. Mm. And so I was already ready to make this kind of the project for the next however long I was going to take. And so that ended up turning into a book. And that's really what the book is about. It's about that journey of what does grace mean and how do you have it in this environment? And what are the practical ways that you can integrate it into your life? Because we're so often taught as Christians, just pray and God will give you grace and then you'll have grace for other people. And it's like, really? Because i that's never happened to me and I don't know anyone that's ever happened to. So yeah, really unpacking like sort of re like reverse engineering it. How do you get like, what are the things that are blocking hmm. my ability to give grace? And then how do I start attacking those problems? Okay. So how do we do that in, in the sense that like, it's a different political world, you know, like we're not mm -hmm. arguing about trickle down economics or, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up in Arkansas, Bill Clinton, and, you know, he was the devil and then it turned out like he really wasn't. And I don't know, maybe, he is. I mean, who knows, right? Like, but, but something has changed to where now, um, the political divide, at least from my lens, I'm looking across the aisle and seeing people who want to overthrow the government, who are pretty ardently um, white supremacists, who champion Christian nationalism. I mean, that to me is a, a bit of a bridge too far um, mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying, okay, well, maybe we could tax the rich a little bit more, or maybe we could do this or that for the poor or universal health care. Yeah, I can see both sides, but racism, Christian nationalism, overthrowing the government, I, I'm I'm struggling with those conversations with, with my family who, I mean, just the other night, you know, where I was mentioning how Trump's, um, his response to Colin Powell's death was just utterly reprehensible on every human level. And, and it was like, oh, well, no big deal. So, how how can you help us? Like how how do we have graceful conversations and inclusion with people that I mean, my God, I, I just I don't understand. I just don't understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Well, I think everything you're saying is exactly how I felt when I started writing this book and was literally called my editor and was like, I'm sending the money back because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't, this is impossible. But the thing is, everything you just described is exactly what grace is for. Hmm. So when you think about even being told, you know, to love your enemies, right, as a Christian, the reason you're being told that is you don't need to be told to love people that you like or to love mm -hmm. people that you're in relationship with. You have to be told to love people that you hate, that you despise, right? So that's the point. It's not- I don't want to though. <laughs> right. But <laughs> grace, so grace is not for the person that you like and agree with everything on and then they did one thing you didn't like and you're like, oh, I'll show them grace. Grace is actually exactly for the people that you despise. Because that's where you need help seeing them as a whole person. That's where you need help seeing them as more than just that belief, more than just that behavior. And so I think it's worth to take a second just to define grace. It's 
I, I use the Christian paradigm of unmerited favor. We think of that usually as it relates to God. But if we extend that to one another, unmerited favor means you you have grace for this person. You see that they're doing the best they can with what they have. You see their whole humanity. If you're a believer, you see the divine spark in them. Mm. Um, regardless of how they're making you feel, it's unmerited. They don't have to do anything to get it, right? So I think that that's, that's where grace really comes in. I think we have a lot of confusion about what grace means or how to practice it because it doesn't mean like you should be upset about those things. And that that's, I think that's completely normal. It doesn't mean that you, you don't get upset about things. It doesn't mean that you don't name problems. It doesn't mean that you don't confront people about problems. It doesn't mean that people aren't held accountable. It just means that it's all done with humanity and it's done with grace. It's done in a way that's more, um, that's whole, right? And mm. so I think that, and and then we sometimes think of grace as being nice or sort of being a doormat, like just, well, you know, don't rock the boat, don't say anything that's going to upset anybody, but, th- but that's not grace. And I mean, just if you think of Jesus, that's not what, that's not how Jesus was. And it's not, you know, Jesus obviously was saying very, very hard things to people. And so it's it's accountability, consequences, all these things are not in opposition, in opposition to grace. Mm-hmm. And and so what it, grace is for me is a tool. So in that situation that you're describing, it's the one it's the thing that says, okay, stop. Like my mom is more than this thing that she's saying. Like mm-hmm. I can see her as a whole person. I can see her who has all these wonderful qualities. And I'm not saying those wonderful qualities excuse what she's saying. I'm just saying that it makes it easier for you to, to see her as more than just that thing. And then great. And then the, the tools of grace are using boundaries instead of demonization or hatred or contempt. So maybe with your family member, the boundary is you don't talk about these things. Right. Right. Maybe the boundary is you try to talk to them, and once it becomes clear they're not going to listen to you and it's just going to be crazy making, then you don't you decide that you don't talk to them. And then you find something because I don't think people should just go, "Oh, well, my family says racist things, so I'm not going to talk to them about it." It's like, well, then who suffers, right? It's mm. it's not you. It's all the people that they're harming with their racist beliefs and and possibly racist behavior. So I think you should f- try to talk to people, and that's there's a lot in the book about how to have healthy conflict. So t- using those tools of healthy conflict, there's social science on how to help people change their minds. And so using those tools, but sometimes it's just too toxic. Hmm. And, and sometimes you can have that conversation in the best way possible and it's not going to make any difference. And so what I say is just figure out what you're a no to and then figure out what you're a yes to. And so if you're a no to that, then just say no and end it at that. Don't go down the road of demonizing and shaming and labeling and all these other things that that are just going to upset you. Just say, this is really upsetting me. What can I do? Who can I give money to? Where can I volunteer? Um, for me, it's like, can I write a column? It could be, I'm going to write a Facebook post that raises awareness about an issue that's not meant to be incendiary or putting anybody down, but that's drawing attention to something. So we can find constructive ways to be engaged um, that don't involve screaming at our family. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, surprise, surprise. So, mm. you know, I say like, we should not be, 
We should be peacemakers. We shouldn't be peacekeepers. You know, a peacemaker is somebody who makes an effort to try to help someone see something in a very respectful way that's constructive. A peacekeeper is somebody who's like, I just don't want to confront my family about the racism because I want to watch Netflix. Like those are two very different things, right? Like you have to Mm -hmm. check in with yourself. Like, am I not doing this because it's uncomfortable and I just don't want to deal with it? Or am I not doing it because it's emotionally unsafe for me? In which case you shouldn't be doing it. Hmm. Right. If it's actually going to, if your dad is going to start screaming and yelling at you, then you, that's not, that's not where you should be going. But, but grace is always about what's happening internally. It's not, your behavior will be better, but even if your behavior is good, and I actually use this example of myself, people often see me on TV and they'll be like, oh, but you were so graceful. You were so you know, you were calm and you spoke in a very measured way. It's like, yeah, but in my head, I was thinking you're a horrible human being that I want to like <laughs> strangle with my bare hands. So it's not really great. I actually say those right? things. Maybe that's why yeah. I'm not on CNN. I just say those things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And so it's, that's not really grace. And so, the, and then I was like leaving furious. I was fuming about it all the way home. I was laying in bed at night fuming about it, thinking of all the things I should have said. Now, guess who's suffering in that story? It's not the other person. <laughs> it's me. And yeah. and I think one of the most important things about grace is that it's not really about the other people. It's about you. And it's about how you can stay grounded and how you can stay engaged around the things that you care about without feeling horrible all the time. Because if you feel horrible all the time, then how helpful are you going to be to people? I know I wasn't very helpful. I think I'm way more helpful now. Hmm. Um, And so I think that it's it's something that the other person may not even be aware of. I mean, the people that I was feeling that way about on set had no had no idea what I was thinking. They didn't, and I don't know that it would even matter to them. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, 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 it's just, it's just like with forgiveness, right? It's like they say being unforgiving is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And that's the same thing. It's like the other person usually doesn't care. Right. Um, <laughs> right. They, you know, you're the one who's torturing yourself. And, and that was really revolutionary. And I think for a lot of people who are engaged around social justice, a great inequality and, and, helping marginalized people are are empaths and very you know empathic i am that way we have this idea that the way we prove we care is being angry and miserable all the time mm. right and it was really eye opening to me when my therapist said did you know that you can actually do this without feeling the way you feel all the time and i was like i don't see how that's possible like how <laughs> could i know that these things are going on and not be angry and upset and crying and all these things all the time. And she said, because you're taking on things that aren't yours. You're not God. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to go and solve and save everybody. Like that's not going to happen. So you need to be informed and aware and active and doing things, but it needs to, there needs to always be a recognition that you can't save the world by yourself. Mm-hmm. You can just focus on what's in front of you and do what you can do. And the best way to do that is to not um, be always coming from a pa- a place of feeling like garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It's such necessary work. I feel like it's the one thing right now that society needs is to be able to uh, 
treat people with grace. And I uh, saw on your social media post, you said, sometimes I really don't like people. Um, and you start <laughs> yes. you start your second chapter with that. I was like, oh my goodness, um, because it's, it's <laughs> such a, um, you know, there's that reality. And then it's really easy to like people that you're kind to, or you have the same uh, faith with or political yes. association with, but it's so hard to to move in a direction of, of, of welcoming people who you morally disagree with um, mm-hmm. on on yeah. topics that are actually really important, like racism, for example. So um, your book, and I, I would love to dig into this a little bit more, your book uh, sheds insight into the process of healing. I mean, you've already talked a lot about that. And also, um, I love the, the dialogue around peace uh, making. Uh, you mm-hmm. talk about the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail when he talks about the white moderate call to unity, a unity that actually allows injustice and oppression to remain. It is a unity that, in his words, is more devoted to order than to justice and can prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. So, mm-hmm. in my mind, that is like, oh my goodness, that is so profound. Um, and that same voice and spirit is what you're talking about. And your call for grace is that. Um, can you speak to how you see grace um, as a transformative force in the world that we live in today? Yeah. And I also should speak to the way I used to misunderstand what he was saying, right? Mm-hmm. I used yeah. to read that to me and I need to be out there throwing bombs, basically. Like, right. not real bombs, but like verbal mm-hmm. bombs. Yeah. And I need yeah. to be like you know, messing people up. And it's like, and I didn't really understand that, of course, if you look at how he was, like, there's no reason to ever think that that's what he meant, because mm. that's not how he did things. And not he, at all. he he operated with grace the same way John Lewis did the same way Ruby Sales did who I interviewed for the book. And so I think that, but there's a really important point in there, which is that, you know, what do you value? And I think around this so-called cancel culture debate, a lot of times what we see are people who are placing a higher value on civility or, you know, these kinds of things, um, unity, right. than, than justice. They're not, right. they're much more upset that somebody got in trouble for saying something racist or sexist than they are that something racist or sexist was said. <laughs> and <laughs> so, totally missing the point. So, yeah. 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 And it's just like, wait, like what is happening? And, and so, Yeah, I think that it's that we have to always remember, like, what outrages you and what outrages me is an injustice and inequality and people being harmed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to that's going to outrage me far more than somebody uh, using the wrong tone or maybe having a conversation in the wrong location or wrong sort of in quotes because there's never a right location. And so, you know, we have to be we have to always be focused on on what. I think really matters. And grace has been often weaponized to try to shut Mm. down those conversations. And I also address, I take on this whole unity idea in the book Mm -hmm. as well, because, you know, Joe Biden has been, you know, calling for unity and he did this as soon as he became president. And I think a lot of people were offended by it. I think people were offended by it on both sides, but I know On the left, people felt like, well, I'm not going to have unity with a white supremacist. I'm not going to have unity with people who think the election was stolen. I'm not going to have unity with these people. And they're right. And they shouldn't be asked to have unity with people like that. We shouldn't pretend, we should never pretend that things aren't happening. So 
when you say that, it suggests that you aren't grasping exactly why we're divided. We're divided over real things. We're divided over values. These are not just minor disagreements. And mm. they're not even major disagreements about things that aren't really critical. These are fundamental differences that cannot be bridged. I mean, we have to be honest about that. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm not going to change my view on anti-racism to have unity with somebody else. Like that's not going to happen. But we can do is use grace. And I think that that's that's what I prefer. That's the paradigm I prefer, prefer because it's honest. And it's and I think also when you talk about unity, especially if you're someone like Joe Biden who, you know, has was in the Senate forever and he's sort of thinking back to the days of comedy and when people were, you know, getting along better and, you know, finding areas of common agreement. But of course, back then, the whole Congress was white men. It, there, it, <laughs> right. there were a few women and, you know, very few people of color. So, of course, they were agreeing on everything. Right. That, you know, it's not that's not really surprising. But guess who got thrown under the bus? Everybody else. <laughs> right. And so so we shouldn't we shouldn't romanticize that, that that the reason to a certain extent, the reason that we have a lot of divisiveness is because there are a lot of people who have a seat at the table that didn't have a seat at the table. Mm. They 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 weren't listened to. They nobody cared what they said, and so now you have people who finally have a seat at the table and who are frankly pretty fed up, <laughs> yeah. and should be fed up because when you have been living with this for generation after generation after generation, and nobody will listen, and then people continue to do the same things, and then just ask for grace, just oh I'm sorry, oops, you know, just right. it's just like really. Like mm-hmm. what? So people are understandably fed up. And so I think that um, we have to ask also in those situations, who do we have grace for? Why do we always have grace for the person who's caused the harm? Right. What about the grace for the person who was harmed? Why are we complaining that they didn't say it in the right way or that they, you know, maybe wanted a, a punishment that maybe it was too harsh, but okay. Can we understand why, mm-hmm. why that would happen? Like, can we have grace for them? Right. And instead, grace is a very, has been traditionally a pretty one-way street. It's been something that's been demanded from people who are being harmed and and not extended to them. Hmm. And you know, this isn't to say that I think that every time there's some sort of movement to get somebody fired from their job, that that isn't can't be problematic. I write about that in the book. I think sometimes it can be problematic. I think sometimes our ideas of accountability look like an annihilation. Mm-hmm. And that there are maybe more humane ways to keep people, to hold people accountable that actually also could bring some change, right? Yeah, like it's so like true. I say, well, I think there's also, this is very much, you know, and I, I don't I, I don't think it's like this in Canada. I don't know. You'll have to tell me. But in the United States, employers don't care about their employees. Mm-hmm. They're not, like, they have no obligation to them. They They don't you know, they don't feel like they owe them anything. They're just basically, you're, you're there as long as they need you and then they throw you a reward and mm-hmm. you're just sort of left, you know, to sink or swim. Right. Versus an employer who looks at their employee and thinks this is a person who's been loyal to me, who's done good work to me, for me. Uh, and so when they mess up, rather than throwing them overboard because I don't want bad press and I don't want my stock market to drop, right. um, which is, let's just be honest, that's what's going on. It's not that they woke up and they're suddenly like, 
wanting to treat people or like care about women being harassed. It's like, this is just capitalism. And so, yeah. And, and rather than they can say like, this was a problem and we're going to take this person and we're going to get them sensitivity training and we're going to have them help be part of the healing process, you know, within our office and, and those kinds of like, there's other things that they could do. But instead, they just fire them and everybody acts like something really amazing happened in terms of social Mm. justice. And it's like, no, we just watched capitalism in action. Like, well, that's what happened. Um, and, and, And I should say, sometimes the person does need to be fired. I mean, sometimes that is the case. And so, but, but. Every you can't the thing the reason I don't like the phrase cancel culture is because it takes a bunch of things that don't real aren't really the same and makes them all the same. Hmm. And so every one of these incidents is different. Absolutely. And it needs to be treated as different. It, there is a difference between someone who did something 20 years ago and doesn't believe it anymore and is sorry, and a person who did it last week and isn't sorry. Right. Right. Like those are very different things. And so um, at the same time, I understand why people are like, I don't care. I don't want to take the time (laughs) to distinguish between them because I'm so sick of this. Totally. And also not distinguishing between the people themselves as individuals. Right. It's just one treatment for everybody. So it's which I think eliminates grace. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's because people are depersonalized and they're just the thing they did. And Mm -hmm. Um, and we don't really see them as as humans because we have stripped them of their humanity. And mm-hmm. that's what we're all doing to each other all the time. You know, right. if somebody's on the other other side in quotes, they're they kind of cease to be people. and yeah. and so that's that's and that's a very obviously a very dangerous place to be. But I think that, my position on like the so-called cancel culture thing is a very both and thing. It's I think it will confuse a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. because it's not an all or nothing just falling on one side or the other of the debate. I think that there is I think that there's some truth in in both sides of the argument, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very true. But that I will always, always come down on the side of the, you know, of marginalized people and people are being harmed. That that's mm. just that's where I yeah. end up, and I actually think that's that's a pretty Christian idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. So uh, shifting gears, and we're going to wrap up here in just a second. But I'm I'm really fascinated to hear your your answer to this question. So if you had a crystal ball and you could look into the future, into the political future of the United States. Um, I mean, I've seen articles that say we're on the brink of another constitutional crisis. Um, Trump recently launched Truth Social, which is like the most hilarious name for you know everything. Um, I, I mean, I've seen that. Oh, everything's fine. We're gonna we're gonna come back together as a nation. When you look in particular to the what is the the twenty twenty four election? Is that right? Um, what do you see? Like, where are we going as a, as a country? Well, I, I won't pretend to be able to predict the future, but my sense of where we're headed is not a good place. And I don't, mm. and anyone who thinks everything is fine, I, I don't even know, like, whatever they're taking, I want some. <laughs> right. um, because that's just not what's happening. I mean, we really do have a situation where people are dehumanizing each other. Mm. And... Um, and I don't, 
I don't see how anything good could come from that. We also have a lot of people who don't believe that the president was legitimately elected, right? I mean, it's right. like democracy is being undermined in a in a very serious way. And so, I, you know, I think that I think we're in grave trouble. Um, and I did interview quite a few peace and reconciliation experts for this book, and they all said the same thing, which is we've seen this before. Hmm. This is this is how it goes. And people will always say, oh, it can't happen here right up until the moment that it happens. <laughs> that it does, and, right, right. Yeah. And they so they see us headed for a civil war. Wow. And so it's yeah, and so I think that we shouldn't we just really shouldn't downplay any of this or assume that our institutions are strong enough to to withstand uh, what's going on in this country. I mean, when you have the death of truth, which is what we have basically had in this country that you know we just can't agree on what's true uh, between people who are of different political persuasions, then you know we're really losing a core foundation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and 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 democracy is is under an unrelenting attack from Donald Trump, yeah. and, and and I mean he was attacking it when he was president, and he's continuing to attack it. And now the Republican Party is really joining in on it. We, mm-hmm. you know, we see all the things that they're doing in terms of curtailing people's voting rights, and hmm. uh, you know, like the 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 system is you know is the system going to even be trustworthy? Right. You know, right. in the, in the future, right? So, yeah, I think it's very, very grave, and mm-hmm. which is why I think that it, I think if you want to stay engaged and you want to, you know, be someone who can help the situation, the only thing that you can control is yourself, right? And that's really the point of the book, and that's really what I discovered, which is that I can, I actually can have some control over how I react to what's happening around me, where I don't let. Like Donald Trump does not get to hijack my day. He doesn't even get mm. to hijack one minute of my day, mm-hmm. which is quite different than it used to be. And so I think that like I'm just very, very clear. I have just the strongest boundaries a- a- around me in terms of what I will allow in. And um, and so I think that the the best thing we can do is just take care of ourselves and not and not do really again what. What I think Donald Trump wants is for us to be hating each other, is yeah. for us to be, is for families to be turning against each other, is, you know, just being, just creating as much division as possible. And so, mm. you know, don't walk into that trap. Mm. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to do that. There is another way to do this. It's such a refreshing perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much for your responses this far, Kirsten, and for speaking grace and helping us understand how to do that. Um, We said that that was our last question, and it was our last formal question, but we'd like to ask you some fun ones at a rapid fire to get to know you better. Are you up for that? Sure. Amazing. All right. So we've talked about politics. We've talked about Trump. We've talked about all this, like... Ugh, stuff. So let's shift gears and and end on a positive note. How about that? Um, All right. So uh, rapid fire question number one, uh, who's been your most favorite person to interview or engage with in the political sphere from your from your public seat? I always do really have a hard time with favorite things also because I've been (laughs) doing it for so long. So I'm trying to think back through all the people that I've 
I've ever interviewed. Um, Is least favorite like- easier? <laughs> least favorite. <laughs> That's true. Um, I did. I did interview. I did interview Donald Trump. So okay. Oh, oh my gosh. There, there you there go. go. Yay. <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> yeah, that one is much easier. I, I tend to really like interviewing uh, writers, so I really like mm. interviewing Glennon Doyle, and I just interviewed mm. Kate Bowler for her new book, and oh, I fantastic. love actually stuff that's not really political. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love those. I love talking to writers. Nice, wonderful. The next question is: Who was your childhood celebrity crush? Oh, um, Richard Gere. <laughs> Richard Gere. Wow. Yeah. I'm trying to, Richard Gere. I mean, there were a whole bunch of them, but I remember Richard Gere, Sean Cassidy. Yep. Um, I don't know how old you guys are. So I'm, I, I'm, yeah, I um, won't even say, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Sean Cassidy was my first. It was my very first one. Didn't like he get like shot in the eye or something when I was Did in, middle, I didn't in know elementary school? That. Oh, yeah. I oh, remember I don't, all the I girls. Didn't know and, that. Yeah, in elementary school, crying yeah. because something happened to Sean Cassidy's eye. I remember that. Oh my god, that's so funny. I'm yeah, look I it was. Up. I, I loved Sean Cassidy, and then I went through a Richard Gere because from Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah. So I was really into to Richard Gere, and then I actually had a big crush on Ralph Macchio from Karate oh, yeah. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Oh. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. You should interview him to, and tell him, you know, like, hey, <gasps> yeah, man, yeah. how you doing? Oh, that's All right, let's, let's say you slightly change your career path and you start your own late night uh, talk show. Who's your first guest and why? Um, gosh, I always have these hard time when you have to narrow it down to <laughs> one person. You can have three. Um, we'll give you three yeah, people. Yeah. I don't even know if I can do that. Wait, I have to think about who would be what I really, really want to talk to. Um, do they have to be alive? No, <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. So if I could have anybody, it would be MLK. Mm. Like I would just mm. love to know what he thinks about what's going on, especially because he's invoked so much by different people right um you can see conservatives invoking him now um in a way that i just don't think is um is accurate so i would love to i would love to have him on obviously jesus would be great (laughs) man this would be a great late night talk show to come to (laughs) mlk jesus yeah no no big deal yeah that sounds like a great too um our last question for you you are a public figure. What's one thing you wished everyone knew about you, but we don't? Well, I don't know if people know this or not, but just that I'm actually a very tender-hearted person, mm. um, despite the fact that I, I have, you know, I'm very analytical and I think just sometimes can come off as very aloof and even cold, but it's that I actually really care very deeply mm. Um about people and about issues and yeah. um yeah and I'm I'm very very tender hearted. Oh, it definitely comes through. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Kirsten, this has been this has really been an incredible honor for us. Um mm-hmm. well, that thank you, you. Would, well, I've loved the conversation. No, yeah. I mean that you would be kind enough, gracious enough to to be on our show. Um so if we can pay that back for you in just a tiny way, where can our listeners find your book, Saving Grace? And then also um where can we follow you on social media? So you can buy the book pretty much anywhere that you like to buy books. Um, And if you like it, please leave a review. 
that's very important. And I can be found on really any social media at Kirsten Powers. So K-I-R-S-T-E-N Powers. Awesome. Well, Kirsten, yeah, Kirsten Kelly, thank you. This has been fun. Uh, it's been I feel amazing. Like thank you. I have I have felt like the least qualified person in the room with both <laughs> of you, but that's been awesome. So no, um, you've been great. Uh, yeah. I'm really excited to see uh, your book take off and continue to follow you in your career. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. Join us Tuesday, November 16th for the first episode of Season 2.